Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And this week, we sit down with Dorothy Hurst, who is a mastermind when it comes to thinking like a dog. Uh, Her book trilogy, The Wolf Chronicles, digs into the history of the world from the wolf's point of view. Her storytelling puts the wild in the center of the story instead of people, and it's a refreshing and engaging perspective that helps the reader better comprehend our own ecologically changing times. Dorothy and I are good friends and writing buddies, and Dorothy also uh, gives us a lot of insights from her work as an acquisition editor at Sounds True and and previously, and and she's also a hands-on editor. Uh, She edits books that have um, been bought by publishers or already have agents, and she's working closely with their authors, so she gives us uh, some, some great tips about everything from book writing proposals to revision. Yeah. And Dorothy's just fun, so there's that. Uh, Just a quick note that this May 2nd at Books, Inc. in Berkeley at 7 p.m., Sylvia Lindstedt and Dorothy Hurst will both be celebrated guests at our first ever recorded live in front of a studio audience podcast in Berkeley. So again, May 2nd, Books, Inc., 7 p.m., Berkeley. That's this Monday. So if you want to be part of our live audience, it's free, it's fun, it's fabulous. Come join us. We're going to talk about how story can save the world. And, you know, small topics like that. It's going to be really great. Sylvia and Dorothy are are just wonderful. And Sylvia has been a guest of ours in the past. So you can check out her podcast and listen to Dorothy, and then, you know, you won't want to stay away. And with that... Enjoy the show. I see you're taking notes there. Oh, just, I, I, um, I think by writing. Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> nice. My brain doesn't work as well if I don't have pen. Right. Okay. <laughs> this, hence the uh, profession. You know, and my pen doesn't work as well if I don't have a brain. <laughs> there you go. So we usually start with checking in about what we're all working on. And, um... We've been, we've been recording a few podcast episodes this week, so we're somewhat working on the same thing, but Anne, do you want to do your quick check-in? Deep sigh. Um, actually, no. I, I have been working on a variety of things, most of them not having to do with writing. Um, but we're focused But on since this here. podcast is about writing, you don't need to hear other aspects like laundry. But um, let's see, I've been working on, actually I've been doing a lot of reading about theme and thinking about theme. So that's what I've been doing. Synthesis. Dialectics. Thesis. Antithesis. Synthesis. Awesome. <laughs> and... Um, I have been not doing all that much because I'm waiting for my one my one of my writing groups to return to me with their news about my book, and I've been finding that I I want to goof off a bit in the meanwhile. I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Can you hear our dog licking himself? No, I can't. But can I see? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Meanie. Say hi to Dorothy. Oh, I see a tail. Oh, oh, there's a hand. And it. Oh, okay, hold on. He's, wait, he's washed out from the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Jada, good boy. Uh, now we'll just, he can just be part of the interview, because, okay. you know. <laughs> oh, baby. Say hello. What, what? What, what? Oh, you're a good dog. Yeah, yes. a good oh, dog. Um, <laughs> and we didn't bring him out just for you, by the way. Okay. <laughs> what are you working on? 
So this week for my own writing, I am working on the beginnings of a screenplay. Oh, fun. That um, I'm trying to get, make, uh, get together for the May 1st deadline for the Sundance contest. So it will be the first five pages, which I have a rough draft of. And then I need to do the synopsis, which I don't have a draft of, and then the rest of the stuff. So that's what I'm focusing on right now. Nice. And are you just going to kind of make up the synopsis and then see what happens? No, I know exactly what happens in the whole screenplay. Oh, that's so... You really? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yes, I'm going to make it up. I mean, so what, this was really interesting because what happened with this was, you know, I have about 70 ideas for projects and about 30 of them are ones that I'm think could actually turn into something. And I had this idea a few years ago and about a year ago I was caught in traffic driving back from Santa Cruz and the whole thing unfolded as a screenplay and I've never written a screenplay before. So um, until so that moment you didn't know it was going to be a screenplay? Nope. I just had the, I had the premise, uh, which is what I have for all my stuff. I just have a one or two line premise. And so what I got the premise. What do you mean when you say the word premise? So I mean, well, so like when I got the idea for the wolf books, it really did come to me. I want to write about how the wolf became the dog from the wolf's point of view. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, you mean kind of more like a hook or a log line by premise? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like a highly, could, a highly commercial, intriguing idea. Yeah. I could even look up what some of them, you know, some of them are, but um, yeah, just something like, let's get my, you have a character in a situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. That intrigues me. And so this one just, yeah, I just decided this was a screenplay and. So now I have to learn how to write a screenplay. Now, did it did it come to you as a screenplay or as a movie? As a movie. Okay. Yeah. So then, right, got it. I was just. I curious. mean, and I actually saw this one scene in particular. I saw um, the second scene in the what turns out to be the second scene. Yeah, I would say nothing comes to anybody as a screenplay. I yeah. think everything comes to people as a movie. Mm-hmm. And I think when you think of writing a play, you see you see the actions and the actors and things more I suppose mm-hmm. so. I don't know I'm very word oriented so sometimes I think thing it, it might come to me as words <laughs> instead of images yeah I don't know why I, I I'm still trying to figure out why this came as a screenplay I just know it is um you know when I got the idea for the wolf books I saw the story unfolding in front of me but for this one it definitely came out that way and I'm not sure why to so talk about when you got the idea for the wolf books so I had been trying to write for about 10 years at this point and I had dozens and dozens of first pages. Um, the difference now being I have probably about 100 first pages of different things. But at that point, I had dozens. And I, I wanted to be a writer, but I couldn't get past a few pages. I had a lot of first pages. I had two or three pages. And maybe the longest thing I had was seven or eight pages. And I had pinched a nerve in my neck. And so I was sitting around a lot. Couldn't watch TV, couldn't read, couldn't work a lot. And so I was just sitting in my chair a lot, and I had recently read Michael Pollan's Botany of Desire, Mm -hmm. which, among other things, um, puts forth the idea that plants domesticated us as much as we domesticated them. Mm. And I'd always been really interested in dogs um, and our relationship to them, and in particular why we have such a close relationship to them, even more so than any other animal, although cat people might argue with me about that and horse people might argue with me about that. But there's just something about the way dogs make us part of our packs and we make them part of our families that I was always curious about. And I was always curious about human evolution and in particular certain things that aren't explained, like why did we become the dominant species on the planet? What happened to make that happen? And all those things were rolling around in my head and I really did just hear somebody say, 
I want to write about how the wolf became the dog from the wolf's point of view. And, that's and that somebody happened. was part of you. <laughs> that somebody was part of me, and yeah. It wasn't that, somebody at Phil's. It was, <laughs> it was not. There was no one else in the room. It was my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and then when did the character come? Oh, so that was really interesting. So what I always like to tell other writers, because I think people get discouraged so easily and people have a lot of negative self-talk about writing. So I got that thought about writing from the wolf's point of view, and the thought that came immediately after that was, well, that's a stupid idea. No one wants to read about it. And even if they did, you can't write it. <laughs> that voice. Oh, yes, that, that voice. Excellent. So, um, but I felt this character was just there. And the character of Kala was very, very forceful. And so I just started writing. And her character was almost fully formed. She was, this voice was strong. I knew who she was. She knew what she wanted to say. And I don't remember exactly what the timing was, but uh, sometime after that, I realized that she had been in one of those first pages I'd written 10 years ago. Wow. So I had written it down and she had just been there in my head doing her thing. I um, am having this whole thought. Which I will it's just, a whole it thought. Will just Not share a whole thought. You as a, a, as a reader one. of your trilogy and a fan of, of everything you do. Um, but this part of the story in some ways is like the epilogue to the trilogy you know, that, that Kala's last act was not what we will not talk about, but uh -huh. you know, this kind of important, controversial trilogy, you know, culmination. But in fact, her, her, her final act was coming to you and saying, you know, you think that the negative self-talk is going to stop me. Look at what I've been through. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I actually put in the, um, I don't know, maybe last second to last page of Secrets of the Wolves, I actually put the line in. That was the line that I had on my first page mm. 10 years before that. Um, it's well, on the, oh, it's on the last page. It's on the last page before the epilogue. Um, should I tell you what it is? Yes, please. It's um, the line on page 350 of Spirit of the Wolves. That's on the, sec the first full paragraph. It says, after the moon set, I left a scent mark on the largest rock in the Enegelon. So that as when I shouldn't say this anymore. Anyway, that's how it starts without giving it away. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, so basically, it was just kind of that figure standing somewhere leaving a mark. Mm. Um, but I can't read anymore because it'll give away the ending. Okay, right. Here we go. Okay. So, so, in, sorry, okay, so in Spirit of the Wolves, that's, that's the beginning. But, it was, but now we're like a thousand pages into the trilogy at this right, point. Right. And that was, that's where it started. And that was the image, that image was what I started with mm. when I sat down to write the trilogy. And there's a lot they, of desire in it, right? Yeah. The when the, the idea came from me. Yeah. So a character with desire. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in this case, a character having made a difficult choice was what it was. Having a, char a character having made a sacrifice mm -hmm. was what it was. Did you have, did you know, when did you know that that was not the beginning, but the end? Well, that's an interesting story. So mm -hmm. <laughs> when I conceived of this, I thought it was one book. Mm. And so it was just going to be one book and I was going to write it. So I, I did actually see it as the end of the first book. Huh. Um, and then it turned into three books in a couple of different stages. First, I got to about page, I don't know, 100 of this book. And I realized there was no way I was going to tell the story in one book. And then I started learning more and more about wolves and the role that wolves play um, in our collective psyche. And the fact that wolves are so vilified and that, in a sense, is vilifying both nature and our own wildness. 
Um, and during all of my research, I ended up going to the International Wolf Conference. There is such a thing. Oh my God, look at that doggy face. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that is his, that is his wolf-like nature. Oh, that is his wolf-like nature. It was a good face. Sorry. Um, so I went to the International Wolf Conference, which happens every five years. And that is where I really heard the ranchers talking. And there, it was a discussion between the you know ranchers who wanted to get rid of the wolves and the people who are wolf conservationists. And I realized all the political rhetoric around it. Um, and that's when it became a trilogy. It was when I realized how much wolves symbolized so much more about us and our culture and our lives. Well, you know, it's interesting and completely unrelated to what you're saying, except that it's about sort of what the wolf symbolizes. Um, I've mentioned this book before. I recently read this book called the, the science of the magical. And mm-hmm. he actually looks at the relationships of ravens and wolves in Ooh. Norse mythology and how yes. Odin is preceded by them. But basically how someone did a study, I think in Yellowstone, sort of trying to figure out why would humans need that image? What does that image actually give humans? And as it turns out, you know, there's an assumption that we're what's called a power scavenger. And that if we followed the the raven, the raven follows the wolf, the wolf makes the kill. And as a power scavenger, we then follow. And so, it, so as it kind of rolls out into mythology about you know, anyway, it's a neat book and it does talk about the different ways the wolf is perceived. Um, and of course, ravens no. are huge in, in this trilogy, in your trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I'm curious about the power scavengers. So by the power scavenger, meaning we scavenge power or that we're really good scavengers? That we use power to scavenge. So like we weren't necessarily okay. the best hunters. We follow the wolf and then we scare the wolf away and take what they, their kill. Just in the same way that the raven would eat after they the wolves had done their thing, the raven follows because they've got a good meal. The right. human follows the raven to find the wolf to get the food. Got it. Mm-hmm. And how's that for a food web? <laughs> yeah, very cool. And well, one of the interesting things about that is that the ravens will deliberately get the wolves because <laughs> they can't open up the carcass. Yes, they're, they're not. Their beaks aren't sharp enough, so they go tell the wolves. And actually, that's how the character of Tlitu came to be was because I put this scene in the first book. In that the ravens come and say, hey, there's a carcass over there. Come get it. The wolves rip it open and then the ravens yeah, go for it. Oh, and so and it's interesting because that, you know, in, in both the book you're talking about and, and in the Wolf Chronicles, that is another symbiotic relationship, um, maybe in contrast to the human-wolf relationship. Well, it's something that interests me because those kind of uh, um, relationships are uh, very common in the natural world. I mean, there are all sorts of... Um, ways you know the the fish that eat the mites off the other fish and all of that there are all sorts of um commensurate relationships in the animal world but what we do then is we have to take the power mm-hmm. so we can't just have a relationship where we work together with another animal we have to we have to control it and in the case of wolves um, domesticate it and that's one of the things that interested me is that you know we can accept a dog because a dog is a wolf that we more or less <laughs> control <laughs> Uh, yeah, unless think... someone's at the door, in which case no one can exactly. control his barking. Or else they're really good at letting us think that we control them. Yes. Um, so that, you know, but they're not, you know, we've controlled their wildness, we've tamed their wildness, and we can tolerate it, whereas we can't tolerate the wildness of a wolf. And so where, you know, wolves and, raven, and ravens have this relationship where the wolf stays the wolf and the raven stays the raven, the way that we ended up keeping the relationship with the wolf was to change the wolf to fit into our culture. 
Mm-hmm. Now I'm having a, like a Beyonce moment. Who you know who runs the world? But instead, it would be the wolf. But anyway, um, but and I and I just want to say because we adopted this dog who is interviewing you with us, um, and you know he's a little troubled. He's got his own history. And and reading the full trilogy, I mean, it was really it's the third book. But you know because I think we I had read the other two before we got him. And I, ha- I was the one person in my family who didn't especially want another being to help take care of. Um, and, and reading the, the third book really changed my relationship with our dog. I mean, it really mm-hmm. made me understand. And with his, with the ways that he doesn't fit into um, our life, the ways that he changes our life and kind mm-hmm. of realizing that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I could handle a wolf, but I am saying that like I, I, I kind of, it, it allowed me to honor what he brings to us, even that's uncomfortable or disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that is one of the points right, about having think. dogs. Mm-hmm. What was that? Like eating poop. <laughs> like eating poop. But I think that is one of the things about dogs is in addition to being just like these little fur balls that we get to give our love to, um, they're like the last little bit of the wild that we will let into our lives. And so through these domesticated wolves, that's like our last connection to the natural world. Yeah. How did you feed that part of you in order to channel a wolf for three books? How did you nourish? Do you eat a lot of meat? The wild in you. Oh my God. I did actually start eating more meat. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when I first, I'm I'm not doing it now, but when I first started writing the first book, I did eat more meat. Uh, It was really interesting. Um, You know, it was really just a question of giving that part of me permission to come out and play. Um, as soon as I said, yes, okay, I'll write this. It was just there. Mm. Um, and at that point I was still working a regular job. Um, and I would be sitting in a conference room and I would just have this vision of like these wolves walking on the table. Mm. Um, and I went to the Squaw Valley, um, community of writers when the book was still very new in my, in my, in my head. And I remember sitting in the big room that they have, and there are these rafters up top. And I remember having this vision of wolves just sitting on the rafters looking down. Wow. Uh, so it was really, it was there. It was just, I had to pay attention to it. Do you have like any spiritual connection to the sense of, you know, we talk about wildness, we talk about these things, but mm-hmm. of course, you know, my thought is like, okay, so you're having these visiting apparitions. Um do you have any aspect where you, that is like a spiritual thing to you? I guess it depends what spiritual means, um, which is very interesting to me. Uh, you know, I was raised agnostic, um, and I consider myself now, um, oh, I'm losing, David Eagleman has a term called possibilian, mm-hmm. which I just love, which I think that's much more what I am. I'm like, yeah, don't know. Mm. Could, be, could be anything out there. Who am I, who am I to say? Um, and a lot of people write to me and tell me that they have a wolf as their spirit animal. But to me, it, it doesn't feel spiritual in the sense that it is other from my regular life. It feels like it's something that's just very deeply a part of me. But there are spirit wolves in the books. There are spirit wolves in the books. And, um, and a spirit, there's this, there's this definite vision of, I mean, how was it to create a kind of a vision of, of that, of the spirit world, you know, with those wolves? Interesting. I don't know why I did that. That, that is one of those things that really just happened in the book in that as soon as I started writing the book, it was clear to me that Kala was visited by a wolf from the past. Um, and that's uh, Lita who, who, who comes back and visits her and then she goes in and out of the spirit realm. Um, boy, I've never really thought about that before. (laughs) 
um, to me, that's just part of my interest in whether or not there is something other than what we are mm-hmm. and what we have here and now. And I don't feel like I would say yes or no to it, but it interests me that it's a possibility. And it ties in, in a way, it's another aspect into the theme of like, you know, kind of the other than human or the other than, I have to say, it's very funny because, you know, again, I, I really can't talk about that book enough. One of the things that, mm-hmm. that that author also talks about, and one day I will remember the author's name. And we'll put it in the show notes. Again. Um, is, I get to look it up. <laughs> you know... The author talks about, you know, studies of plants that use fungus as a method to communicate and protect themselves, but not just themselves, others, right? So, you know, well, because what they did is they isolated one plant and um, to the point where they didn't have the fungus connection and they found that the plants around them were not able to um, develop the chemicals that like repelled aphids or attracted, there was a bug that ate aphids. And so they would release a chemical that was more attractive to get the predators of the aphids to the plant. And if they completely isolated the plant, then nothing around it would change. But if they allowed the root connection to happen with the fungus, even if they were separated above ground, they, the fungus would carry the information from one plant to another. Wow. And that other would start releasing the chemicals it needed to attract the things that would prey on the things that were preying on it. So it's a really interesting... That sounds like an awesome book. Wow. (laughs) Well, you know, and he actually talked about Avatar and how in Avatar there's that tree, right, that it has this connection. And we have on these sort of metaphysical ways these images of the interconnectedness of everything. And Mm -hmm. sort of the more we learn, the more we realize, oh, wow, that's possibly scientifically demonstrable. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's just funny that you were saying other than human, because I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that, you know, as we look at the wolves, as we look at, uh, you know, our relationship to nature, we, as much as we'd like to think we're other, we can't escape being part. Right. Well, and I would say that if we have to think of ourselves as part, or we're not going to have a very nice place to live anymore. Right. And you, you also found that some of what you created or had to imagine your way into was becoming scientifically validated as the years went on. Right, Dorothy? Well, a lot of it was, um, most of it had just become scientifically validated as I began to write, which was why I was so excited about it. So all the stuff about the coevolution of wolves and humans had just come out of the scientific journals and journals and was beginning to come into the mainstream, there was a book called The Truth About Dogs by Stephen Budiansky, um, which was the first one I read. Um, and that was also in all the evidence about the, the mitochondrial DNA evidence, which has somewhat been disproven, had changed the timing of things and saying that our um, relationship with dogs probably went back much, much further than we thought. People used to think it was 15,000 years ago, and now it's pretty at least 40,000, if not longer, which puts them much farther back in our history. Um, so in that case, that, that science had already come. The science that actually changed, which really messed me up, was um, the emergence of agriculture and the emergence of dogs. Mm. So when I first started writing Promise of the Wolves, um, the oldest dog skeletons were 14, 15,000 years old, and then they started finding 30,000-year-old ones, and then they found 40,000-year-old ones, which meant I had to completely change the plot of the third book mm. uh, and, the, and the arc of the story. 
Um, originally, um, Calla was Calla and her friends were going to be the first dogs, but then when it turned out dogs came to be earlier than that, I couldn't do it. <laughs> and, and, and let's talk about this. And I, I want to talk about some some of your other work as well. But but in a book where a, where wolves talk and you've developed a spiritual system and a social hierarchy, you know, social political hierarchy and all of these things, what makes certain scientific facts important to hew to? You know, in fantasy, what in your or in your fantasy here, uh-huh. right, what what makes something kind of okay to invent, and what makes something important to get accurately? Well, I guess I guess the basic the basic answer is to thicken the plot. <laughs> okay, so it's uh, narrative cornstarch, is what I mean. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I guess what happened was the, the the science is what interests me. I'm really, really interested in science, and I'm really interested in particular in missing links. Where there's a, I think, and I could have been a, either a scientist or a writer. I could have gone either way. Um, and so, what would interest me as a scientist is you know all these things, and you know all these things, and you know all these things, and you get to a certain point where you don't know anything anymore. And then, as a scientist, you start to try to figure it out. As a writer, there's all this stuff you know, and all this stuff you know, and all of a sudden there's stuff you don't know, and so you make something up. <laughs> And so I took it as far as the science would take me. Um, I didn't, I never contradicted any science that was certain. Um, anything where I had the science, I, I hewed to that. Um, and then where there were spaces, I, I put something else in. Um, and then I also would just um, use conjecture as to the why of it. Um, so you would know that, you know, so there's this, there's this one, um, a couple of kind of small examples that I can think of right now is there's a question in, conservation as to why wolves will sometimes um, kill more animals than they eat. You know, sometimes they'll kill like a dozen um, elk and not eat them. Um, And so I'm like, okay, well, why would they do that? Well, maybe it's because they were trying to prove something to other wolves or maybe only sick wolves do that. And I can't remember where I landed on that. Um, But another one was the whole idea that, you know, in theory, wolves only take the weak and the sick, but sometimes they don't. And so I made something up for why they don't. Now, one of the scientific theories is that they can actually smell something that I, that a human couldn't see. One of the questions is whether or not wolves only go after the weak and the sick and the easiest targets. And one of the theories behind that is that they can smell or hear something that we can't. So they could hear an animal's joint that was arthritic, or they could smell that it was sick. And so that's one of the theories. No one knows for certain, but I put that into a hunting scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing I did was I just made something up. I thought, well, what if they do it to impress other wolves? Mm-hmm. So they go after a big wolf to prove that, you know, a big animal, a big prey animal to prove that they're tough. And so I put both of those things in, one of which is one of the scientific theories and one of which I made up. But since there's no, no one knows for sure. I feel oh like my God. Making it up. You have to read that book. Yeah, I will. There's a whole is section. Is it Matt, Ka- Matt Kaplan? Is that that one? It's probably. No, there's that's something whole... about the Holy Grail. Never mind. No. Called? It's called The Science of the Magical. And he's got a whole chapter on a cat named Snowy that lives in like a hospice place. And the cat will go sit and next to a person who's going to die and just sit there. And like, like eventually the staff will notice that Snowy hasn't moved. And they'll mm-hmm. know that that person is actually on their way out. Mm-hmm. Even though they're all on their way out, but you know what I mean. 
Like, right. Well, they have, you know, they, they, they have dogs that can sniff cancer and they have dogs that can sense epileptic seizures coming. So I wanted to, to talk a little bit about your editing. So right now I am working with some authors, um, collaborating with authors on narrative nonfiction, which I have not done before. And this also goes a little bit to when I was an editor. And the thing that I want to share with readers or listeners about that is that it's all in the revising um, and that you have to keep working and that the difference between one of the differences between someone who's published and someone who isn't published is that the people who are published keep working and working and working until the book is as good as it can possibly be. Uh, and, and is that work digging the story out of the writing, fixing the sentences, finding the story? What do you think is the biggest part of that kind of that effort? I think it's all of it. And I think everybody has a natural talent that's easy for them. And so some people will be really good at getting the story down um, some people will be really good at dialogue. Some people will be really good at setting. Um, but whatever you're not good at, you'd have to go fix in whatever way you can, whether it's getting help from someone, whether it's redoing it. Um, so that that's the one thing I'll say. And I found that really interesting working in an area I hadn't worked at before with narrative nonfiction, um, which is that it's the same thing. You just keep, if it doesn't work, you keep trying things until it does. So that's what I would say about being a professional hands-on editor. Um, and there's a certain when I'm working on somebody else's project, I don't have the luxury of being like, well, but I don't want to mess with my story. I like, you know, I, I thought of it this way and this is what I wanted. I'm like, you know what? It's not reading how it should read. So find a way to make it work. And so that's one of the takeaways from being a hands-on editor. And then as far as acquiring books, really an acquisitions editor, editor's job is to, um, which is somewhat different from an agent's job because an agent isn't working for a particular publisher. So if you're working for a particular publisher, you're trying, you're trying to find something that matches what that publisher publishes. Um, and in this case, I'm acquiring books for Sounds True, uh, which is books on um, personal transformation. And so I'm looking for books that help people transform their lives. And so that's the mission of the company and I'm keeping the mission of the company in mind at the same time. I'm out there looking for really interesting authors who are doing interesting things. And so then it's a, it's a matchmaking sort of thing in that you could write the best book in the world. It could be the best book I've ever read. And if it doesn't match what I'm looking for, I'm not going to, I can't publish it. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think is really hard for people to know, which is like, there's a certain amount of it you can't control, you know, certain editors, certain agents are looking for certain things. Um, that being said, it goes back to the, write the best thing you can possibly write because no one has time to think that maybe you'll someday fix the book. Um, how okay. about platform? How about that mysterious thing that authors are asked to have or to cultivate? Yeah, so platform is really about helping a publisher reach your audience. And that's because you can have the best idea in the world, but there needs to be a way to get it out to people. And platform is just a way that the publisher can see that you can help them do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to me like we're in a moment where there are a lot of theories about platform, but not a lot of maybe studies or certainty. I mean, social media, um, I don't know what, I mean, social media is one, but I don't know that it actually translates. Do you, do you, do you have a sense of that from, from your work? Only when there's something obvious. So if like someone has just had, a blog post that got 200,000 hits and is really viral, or if someone has a bunch of pieces in, you know, major media um, or has a television show, then that's an obvious platform. 
once you're not at that level, no, it's not that certain. Um, and, you know, we'll talk about it, you know, when we're looking at, when I'm talking about, you know, books that I want to publish, it's like, okay, can this author get to us? Can they not? And it's, you know, it's not a science as much as I wish it was, as much as we all wish it was. Um, it's just a way to try to find, and in general, I remember when I first became an editor, um, Alan Schrader, who, who trained me as an editor, one of the things he said is, you know, my job is to say yes to books, not to say no to books. So we're not looking for ways to say no. We're looking for ways to say yes. We're, we're looking for a way to publish books that we love. And what helps? What helps is an author who is flexible and active. Um, and then, yeah, it is, it is the platform and unfortunately and as frustrating as it is it's really hard to define exactly what that is mm -hmm. um, but any way an author can show that they can reach an audience helps us another big question that i get a lot from my students is especially for more memoir oriented but not necessarily fully memoir some some of the pieces are um maybe historical you know looking at some kind of interesting family situation that has a historical context but th with these kind of books, um, when would a proposal be appropriate? When when is the whole manuscript required? <laughs> that was funny. I was at um, a session at the San Francisco Writers Conference when there was the, the agents for it was a group of like, twelve agents, and someone who was a memoirist asked, "Do you have to have the full manuscript, or do you have to have the proposal?" And got different answers. Mm -hmm. So there was an agent who was like, "I don't want to see the whole thing. I want to help you build it." There was an agent said, no, it's like a novel. It has to be the whole thing. And there was someone says, I want to see about four chapters. So I don't think there's an answer for that. Yeah. It depends on the agent and then it'll depend on the editor. On the publisher. Right. Yeah. I had, I had heard before this, um, that memoir, you had to have the whole thing, mm -hmm. but apparently that's not always true. So that's one of those things where it, it falls between categories. Now, you are really strong at writing proposals and kind of marketing copy. Can you give a few hints as to what makes for a strong proposal, strong marketing copy? What is the art of that that you're good at? So the, the main thing to remember about writing a proposal is that it's a marketing piece. It is not a description of your book. Because if you could write a description of your book in a couple pages, you wouldn't have to write a whole book. Um, so the proposal is... What is going to excite somebody about your book? What is different about it than anything else that's out there? Um, what is going to be relevant and interesting to an audience? And it's all about your audience. It's not about you or your book. It's all about what your, what your audience will find interesting. Mm -hmm. And how about the fact that it feels so hard for people to synopsize, for example, something that is long and complicated and layered. Nuanced. And, right. And, and it's like it took... It took, you know, 300 pages. How can I put it into a page or two? I have students who are working on this, even with novels where an agent wants a synopsis. You know, how, how can we understand them as two different things and, and get good at the one? <laughs> Interesting. This is such a hard question for me to answer because it's so natural for me. It's yeah. one of those things that's easy for me. So it's always hard to... Can you describe, like, what's happening? What do you look... You know, in the same way you describe, like, getting these pre premises... You know, do, what do you get some sense of like, these are the pillars or these are the... I'm basically writing jacket copy. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, if I were in a bookstore and I'd never heard of this author, I'd never heard of this book, and I picked it up and looked at the back of it, what would grab me? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, Angie, you were talking about like a log line. So I always start with a log line. Like what's going to 
what's going to grab someone, then what's going to grab them for the second line, what's going to keep them reading for the third line, the fourth line, the fifth line. And so it's really, and it's, you know, get them to want more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the difference between um, non-narrative nonfiction and fiction and narrative fiction is that for the fiction and the narrative fiction in the proposal, narrative. it's really about the story. And then when you start doing the non-narrative nonfiction, like, you know, how-to books, then the platform comes in and the audience comes in. Right. right. The other thing I want to say, having had the extreme privilege of you helping me write, work on a letter and do these different things, uh-huh. I think sometimes when people are looking at these pieces, they think that should be easier to do than their book on some level because it's shorter or that uh, the piece about revision doesn't, you know, like, oh, I, di- I can't do it because it didn't come out the right way right the first time. Right. Yeah. And um, yes. It was yeah, and it takes work like anything else. And it takes multiple drafts. Um, and I think one of the things I would say is, so say you have to write um, a page about your book, write 10 pages and then just start taking out anything extraneous. Um, I always love, I haven't read the book, but I've just seen the movie, A River Runs Through It. <laughs> and there's a scene where the character comes in, the boy comes into his father with the article, the essay he's written, and his father gives it back to him and says half as long. Mm. And then he goes out again and he comes back in and his father says half as long. And that happens three or four times and then it's done. And so I always think of that with those things. Yeah. And that's great because sometimes cutting is so much easier and more pleasurable than figuring out what to put mm-hmm. in. Yeah. And I think that it also ends up helping me get to the heart of what my story is about. So I usually, I will often write the jacket copy or the pitch before I write the book. Mm-hmm. Because for me, the jacket copy or the pitch is who is the character, what does she want more than anything else in the entire world, what's in her way, which is basically what story is. Mm. Um, and so if it's a, you know, for a piece of fiction, if I'm doing that, that's what I do. There's this character, this is her situation. The most important thing in the world to her is this is X. This is in her way. She maybe is going to triumph over it, and then something worse happens. So it's really just building the standard story structure in that pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have have one more question before we do steal this, because I I just, why do you think that is story in our, in our culture, in our, in our mythic culture? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but and in um, this like, you know, 90, well, actually 45 seconds or so. Could you explain (laughs) the historic context? I know it's a large question. Fitting it in with our, you know, our language brains and how that's going to, but just, you know, take your time. Well, no, it's, and it's a fat, it is, it is, you know, worth a couple of books worth of information. So we have, you know, Campbell's Hero's Journey pretty much imprinted in us as the story structure. That is in so in some ways, I think that is our culture. Our Western culture has that, and other cultures don't have that same story structure. So mm. that's just a, uh, that's what we know, and so the, and that's from the time we're very very small and printed on us. Um, that being said, there are certain things that seem to be across cultures. You know, every culture has a flood myth. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, there 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 are several. You know, we all every culture seems to have some kind of other than human deity or deities. Um, so there's some things that do seem to be, um, go pretty far back. There's a book called, um, I can look up the author if you like, but it's called when they severed earth from sky. Mm, we'll put it. it talks a, yeah. Yeah. It talks a lot about story. And, um, one of the things I really remember from it is talking about the whole idea of, um, 
the the story that there's an angry god at the top of that mountain and because you could people will remember that generation after generation where they won't remember oh yeah that was a volcano that blew up mm-hmm. so if you remember that's an angry god and if you build at the foot of the mountain the god will punish you that's something our brains remember as opposed to 500 years ago, there was a volcano that destroyed the village. Mm, right. And you're like, oops, I live in Hawaii. How do I get away from that? <laughs> um, yeah, and then it's interesting, too, because I think um, I'm all, you know, as you write your screenplay, you will find that you are at the intersection of symbol and language. And um, it's going to be, I always find it interesting about what we bring to that. And when I think about story and symbol, and you say, like, okay, it's easier to remember there's a deity in part because we make that deity look like ourselves, some aspect, not all of them, obviously. Um, but I think there's also, you know, an education process. Like, it's, we're, I was talking to my um, teachers last night at a board meeting, and they're looking at this math program, and part of what it does is work on literacy. And so through narrative, they talk about math. So mm-hmm. Something about connecting non uh certain kinds of information to something concrete that we stare at like when you read about um about editing and stuff for for visual things the eyes like the eyes are a thing that people always look at when they are looking at a film or you know what i mean and so it's just interesting i think that there's a process by which we learn lessons or communicate lessons and values through stories because those are the ways we kind of create our own it's how we make sense of our own history Mm -hmm. but i also think we use his never mind i'm just gonna stop now but no and i also think it's interesting about how we communicate stories because we used to just communicate stories by telling them to people who were on the other side of the fire from us um and then with the you know mediating media that we have now you know it's you had to you know somewhere along the line we learned to write and read but that's removed. And so you're not actually talking to someone and telling the story. You, you have to take what's what you visualize, put it down in this weird writing thing, this symbol, these symbols, and then someone else looks at those symbols. Yeah. And, it's magic. Their, and it creates in their heads. Right. And then with film, you're trying to go past that, right? You actually show them the pictures. So in a way, film seems to me to be closer to sitting around the campfire because you're actually showing. Hmm. Picture. So, so a lot of what we're doing with this weird writing thing and filmmaking thing is we're trying to recreate sitting around a campfire. Hmm. Why is it always night when we tell these stories? Because I feel like <laughs> we were probably chatting over the grubs we had just dug up at the same time. We never talk about that. And I think it's sort of interesting. And this is just going to be my last random tangent. But whenever we talk about storytelling, we always tell a story about how Og went out and killed something, you know, an Orok or something, and brought it back, and we talked about it over the fire. But the truth is, like, you know, I am sure that Nancy and Wilma were digging up grubs and sharing something about, you know, their lives as well. But we tend not to create that even when we talk about our archetypal narrative experience. So interesting. I'm going to pick up on that because what I find interesting about that with technology is in a sense a return to that mm-hmm. because you don't have to go home and sit down and read a book or turn on TV anymore. You pick up your cell phone and whoever's telling you the story is right there. Mm-hmm. And so that's an interesting circle. So yeah, if you're digging the grubs and you're talking about a story, you can do that at the same time. 
Are there different types of stories? Are there, is there a certain kind of story that you tell when everybody's sitting around eating as opposed to when you're off hunting or, you know, digging up plants and grubs? Mm-hmm. And what does the cell phone story have to do with that? You know, all the, the young women in Asia who are doing like the quick novels on their phones. Right. Um, interesting. So that's, that's, it would be interesting to see how that comes full circle. Yeah. yeah. What is the prehistoric meme? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, it is time. She's like, I don't know where you people are going with this. Dorothy and I are like, let's just go. It is time now. And if and if you and if you listeners want more of this or something else, uh, we will be on May second at Books Inc in Berkeley, May second, two thousand sixteen, at seven p.m. at Books Inc in Berkeley with Dorothy and um, Sylvia Lindstedt, and and we will be doing a story makers show uh, grappling with a lot of these questions that we've talked about today about the, the more than human world and what the role of story is um, in changing the world for good or bad, saving the world or not, um, and all of that. So, And where grubs fall in the new protein source, because <laughs> we are coming full circle. I guess we, we are. Sit down and find that meme. What, what was the meme? Donna, it's probably a carved bison. But anyway... Um, <laughs> With some letters under it. <laughs> and you can steal that. But this is our yes. Steal This episode. T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. So we end our podcasts talking about something we've come across in our grub digging or reading or otherwise that we um, would like to take and make our own. Angie. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay. You mentioned earlier, and, and I need to just keep coming back, and I talked about this yesterday, which will be a week ago for, or more for whoever is listening. You know, bringing that piece of intentional play back mm-hmm. into my process. And um, part of that is watching unending sketches from the BBC and, and you know, a bit of Fry and Laurie and Big Train and um, that sort of thing. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. I had a student yesterday in my salon class um, who submitted a piece that had a flashback in the middle of the scene, well done, well executed, and it ended at a cliffhanger. And then she hopped back into the scene. And I just loved that. I just thought, you know, usually a flashback has this sort of neat little arc or it's got this little point that it makes. And and for her, but, and it's like, and it was like kind of a, is he going to die moment? And then we flash back to, we jump back to him. So we know he didn't die, but we don't know how. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was an incredible generator of readers questions. So I am going to, um, I mean, I think I, I, in my novel, I go back and forth and I, I hope I've cut things off in daring places, but, um, I'm going to go back and try to be more daring even about that and just let people hang. There you go. Hang on. Hang on. Let people hang. Um, Dorothy, what would you like to steal? So I have just been rereading some Sherry Tepper. And so I've been rereading, uh, grass and the family tree. And the the couple things I want to steal from her is that she is, first of all, her audacity in that she just takes these huge ideas and then just layers them and layers them and layers them and just, um, just really is um, fearless in how she does that. And then just really, that's kind of what the intention is, the audacity. And then as far as craft goes, I really want to start picking apart how she layers everything because I think it's really fascinating. Mm. Well, is that a narrative nonfiction? No, it's fiction. It's um, science fiction fantasy. Interesting. Grass and the family tree. Mm-hmm. It'll be in the show notes. Right. That's fascinating. And audacity is such a wonderful thing. I mean, I think what we're all looking for most is 
kind of permission, some kind of mm-hmm. that comes up a lot here, and I love the word. Well, oh, audacity isn't asking for permission, is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, kind of the better. opposite of right, it. Yeah. Right, okay, even better. Dorothy, will you tell our listeners, besides on May 2nd at 7 p.m. at Books, Inc., where they in can Berkeley. find Yes, and where can they find you in the, in the virtual world? You can find me at www.dorothyhurst.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Dorothy Hurst. Excellent. And uh, we will put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you, guys. This was fun. Thank you. It was incredibly fun.